Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Look out. It's only films to be buried with Judgment Day. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with Judgment Day. My name is Brett Goldstein. I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a teriyaki sauce, and I love films. As Cassandra Clare once said, Only the very weak-minded refuse to be influenced by literature and poetry, and the even weaker-minded pretend they don't get emotional watching some films. Whoa, hey, you're talking about some of my guests here, Claire. Give them a break. Every week, I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died, then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. But not today, because today, my friends, is Judgment Day. The world has ended. And James McNicholas stands before me. He has one chance to prove why I should send him to heaven and not to hell. What will happen? Find out in this episode. Check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you get an extra 20 minutes of chat with James. We talk about secrets. You get the whole episode uncut and ad-free and as a video. There's all sorts of other stuff there too. Check it out at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. So, James McNicholas is back for a third time. He is a brilliant podcaster, writer, football journalist and stand-up and actor. He's one of my favourite people and he's one of my favourite guests. If you haven't listened to his last two episodes, I very much strongly suggest that you do because they are some of the greats. We recorded this on Zoom a couple of weeks ago. It's a delight, as ever. I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy Episode 223 of Films to be Buried with Judgment Day. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with Judgment Day. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I'm joined today by an actor, a sketco, a podcaster, He's a husband, he's a father of a dog, he's a lover, he's uh, not a fighter, he is a legend, and he is one of my all-time favourite guests on the show, which is why I'm having him back for the third time. He's a horrible historyer and a boy. Please welcome, he's also a man, welcome to the show, the one and only, I can't believe we managed to get him, here he is, everyone cheer, it's Mr James McNicholas! Woo! Wow, what an intro. Thanks, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe you managed to get me again. I think 
I must be the least famous person to have been on this show three times. And I, I think that's a record I've got a decent chance of holding. I will agree to disagree. You're very well known and respected <laughs> in your field. You are very popular among the cast and crew of Ted Lasso, who are all fans of your work because they all support the wrong team and yeah. they listen to your disgusting work that you do, your propaganda that you do <laughs> for that disgusting team. Can we briefly talk about why is that team doing so well? It's really upsetting. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know. It won't last, Brett. It's, you know. Now you're talking. That's my boy. Yeah, the, the pessimist in me says it won't last. But I'm enjoying it while it is. That's the thing. You've got to enjoy yeah. the journey. I mean, it's quite phenomenal. It yeah, is amazing. Nice. I know yeah. that um, the Arsenal manager, Mikel Arteta, has watched Ted Lasso. So right. maybe in a way this is your fault. Fuck. <laughs> I don't know if that's occurred to you as a possibility, but... Fuck. Yeah, like, I, all season long, Arsenal are going to win the league and you're going to be like, how did they do it? How? And then one day you'll be filming at the Emirates Stadium, go in the dressing room. There'll be a believe sign. Believe above the door. <laughs> no! I did this you to myself. too hard. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. But it must be a real treat for you as, as someone as hardcore as yourself and you've had yeah. a difficult time of it. It must be really something. And are you enjoying it or are you spending the whole time going, it won't last, it will go away, this, this, this is a one-off? That's the reason I'm saying that is because I'm enjoying it so much. You know, I'm scared mm-hmm. I'm gonna, that the spell's going to break and we'll turn yeah. back into a big footballing pumpkin carriage thing. Um, but no, I'm really enjoying it. And we've suffered for it, Arsenal fans. You know, you we, were, we were figures of fun for so mm-hmm. long. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad that the supporters have got something to cheer for once and yeah let's hope it lasts that's lovely have you um uh, with all your um work you've done your propaganda work for arsenal have yeah. you um got the, th- the thing to- about that is i get accused i actually get accused of that i get people on oh, twitter really? being like you work for the club the the owner stan Kroenke kissed your mum and he's your real dad and Mikel arteta and you have a cuddle after every match you just <laughs> He whispers things in your ear and you write them. So do be careful with those propaganda allegations. Well, no, uh, I'm glad you've been reading my tweets. And let me just be clear, it's absolutely true. You do, you do propaganda for the club, but have yeah. you? has it got you... Money. It's very lucrative. Aside from the riches, has it got you in with the team? Are you, are you, are you talking to these people? Are you close with them? Has that changed your relationship with them? Yeah, they're much more like real people to me now. Uh, you know, I suppose I would be breaking confidences if I if I was specific. But mm. it is interesting. Like I tell you the story. So I write about football. You know, that's one of the things I do. And I interviewed a footballer not too long ago. He's an Arsenal player, and uh, we did the interview, and it went well. I thought we got on. Nice guy. And then afterwards, it sort of got back to me that this particular player had said, "Oh, I didn't realise." Um, it was going to be that journalist and that publication. I was writing for The Athletic. And he said, if I'd known it was going to be them, I wouldn't have done it. And I was like, why? Why did he say that? And he said, well, apparently four years ago, you wrote a piece where, or or one of your colleagues, he wasn't sure, wrote a piece where, you know, you sort of slightly criticised the player and used some stats and said maybe he wasn't playing particularly well. And it was just a really interesting thing where you're like, Mm. oh, wow. He remembered that. Not only did he read it, he remembered yeah. it. And he bore that grudge. 
Beast, may I ask you something? Tell me uh, one of the bad reviews that you got many, many years ago uh, at the Fringe, and I bet you can do it word for word. Yeah, of course. And that is one of the great sort of paradoxes and contradictions of my life is that I'm a performer and when I perform, I would say I hold my critics in complete contempt. (laughs) And yet I am effectively a football critic. Um, And so reckoning with that duality has is a constant internal battle. I am my own enemy. Has it changed your relationship as a performer then when you're getting reviewed and all that or are you still equally that would be very grown up wouldn't it if the answer was yes mm. but it's not i think i think i genuinely i, I sort of said it with a, a, a ironic tone that i hold them in contempt but it is kind of true like i ultimately feel like <laughs> you know what they're doing has not a great deal of worth i know this is my ego that my prickled ego after criticism probably but yeah i i do sort of think oh well we're the ones doing it you know what do you know get up on stage but i'm sure that's how footballers think of me kick a ball i can't i'm rubbish but (laughs) so yeah it hasn't really led to a kind of appreciation what are you like with critics do you like critics they keep giving you awards so i imagine you've sort of come round. yeah at the moment i seem to think they're all right Uh, do you know what i think it's so difficult i i don't Sometimes I'm like, the person making the art should never read the reviews because it's a discussion happening about you and your work. I don't know that you should be in on. Yeah, it's not for you, is it? It's not designed for your validation. I know that that's how it feels Mm. as a performer, but a review exists to inform the public of whether or not they might enjoy something. I don't know. Sometimes you have to follow the trail if you've been hurt by a critic like... Just follow them home and well, the problem <laughs> is as, quite yeah. unhappy and you go, oh, okay, you're the an pro- unhappy person. The problem is as well that, like, obviously if you're going to sort of disregard criticism, it means you've got to disregard the, the positive reviews yeah. as well. But um, I think you do anyway, right? As in, that's the, I think that's the point is that if I ask you, give me a line from a bad review you've had, you could, but if I say, tell me about your great reviews, could you word for word them? Actually, you probably could, I don't know. <laughs> could I've you? actually, can you not see? I've got all those written on the walls behind me. They're <laughs> tattooed across my body. Um, no, I I know what you mean. I Actually, my irritation with reviews often is like commercial. So if you're doing a show, hmm. especially in, say, Edinburgh, you're sort yeah. of dependent on the reviews slightly to sell the show. Yes. So often, like, the value of, like, a four- or five-star review is purely a commercial one. And when you don't get it, you're like, oh, from a marketing perspective, having yeah, put all this bad. work in, that's annoying or frustrating. But the words themselves don't tend to live with me for too long. You know, I've had lovely reviews of things. And, you know, by all means, if there are any critics are listening, continue to write those lovely reviews. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... it's uh, it is something I wrestle with and it is something that I factor in to my writing about sport. I think I I write about sport now, but I do so with kind of the caveat that I accept I can't know as much about that profession as someone who's doing it every single day. And I think all critics would benefit I, I, from that perspective. Yeah, I spoke to a footballer when preparing for Ted Lasso. I did I had spent some time with an older footballer and I asked him about critics and commentary and stuff, and he said, he said, the reality is no one actually knows how it works. So, so people are saying all this shit on the TV or anything, and they're like, 
they don't know how we train and how so much of it is rehearsing set pieces and and like we have plays planned out like so much of it is not at all what you think what people are shouting at is wrong is like you don't understand what we actually what we've been doing and what we're doing here you know what I mean like it's mm. it's almost a different game to what people think it is and I don't know I think I it's, I think I just get so I read it it's not, nothing to do with me and I won't name the show there's a new show that's come out and I saw a review for it and it's a fucking like 12 part show it must have taken years to make and the review is simply the headline is not worth your time and then there's a review and you go like not worth your time <laughs> this is someone's this is many many people's at least a year of their life and yeah. you're saying not worth your time and that's taken you how long to write that it's just that it's just it's just insane i do think maybe all critics should have to spend the amount of time it took to make the film to write the review <laughs> maybe that's fair if they spend a year thinking really thinking and honing this perfect review then maybe it's like yeah okay i'll listen also, what sort of headline is not worth your time? I mean, who who's think, who sees a headline saying not worth the time and thinks I might dip into that? I mean, I guess if it was about someone I knew that I didn't like, I probably would read it. Yeah. Beyond that. Yeah. I, I think that's true. And actually, something that exists in sport, which I think exists less in art, is the way that fans or sometimes pundits or, or writers will kind of talk about a team and say, you know, they didn't want it, really. They didn't want it. They didn't work hard yeah, enough. Yeah, yes, this is it. And, and I think that's 99% of the time complete projection and completely unfair. Like, these guys are the absolute elite who have given blood, sweat <laughs> and tears to get to the very top of their sport from being, like, six years old. I think they're capable of working hard. And so I think, you know, you should try and always show people that respect. I think the things I don't like, the things I don't like in reviews that I think are bad is one where you assume the intention exactly that we say either they don't want it or if it's a film where they go like he's clearly he clearly feels this and you go you don't fucking know that and the the other crime is talking about a different film like it should have had more of this or whatever and you go yeah but it didn't like there's a there's a reason it doesn't have more of the film you're imagining this is the film yeah this film talk about this film not the film you'd prefer if you made it do you know what i mean Uh, absolutely yeah i do think it's an interesting discussion that one of like do you need to have been part of that process? Like, do you have to have worked in film in some capacity to really be able to write about film with integrity? I guess I guess the answer is no, because an audience member hasn't had that experience and ultimately they're who it's for. But I think, for me, simply, the reason criticism should exist is to elevate stuff. That's what I think. As in, stuff you haven't seen that is amazing and perhaps you didn't quite get the first time you saw it and then you read an essay on it and it's like because of this and this and this and this and you're like oh my god I need to see that again and then it like opens a whole world of stuff that's where I think it serves a great purpose and it's a sort of wonderful thing like in Ratatouille like in Ratatouille you know no one unless he writes that review no one's going Mm. to a little restaurant with a rat as a chef with a rat head though but but he (laughs) champions it top of the episode yeah. If you haven't yeah. seen Ratatouille, A, what are you doing with your life? B, don't listen on. Fast forward. You know, Charlie Brooker did a huge five-minute piece on his show about The Wire and how everyone had to watch The Wire. Thank you, Charlie Brooker. You did mm. good for the world, you know what I mean? Like, 
I, th- I think it all comes down to fucking being... It's all yes-anding again, isn't it? I think if you hate stuff, you should probably keep your mouth shut. That, I guess, is what I think. But if but, it's your job to write a review every week, I guess... But the are, I guess what the interesting thing is that reviewing is also somehow performative. You know, for some people, that is their persona, that they hate stuff. Mm. And they play up to that. And that's, that is their art, that they create these little yeah. pieces where they take things apart. But, yeah, it feels a bit cruel to me. Yeah, I don't like it. You're a nice boy. Oh, yeah. Now, if we can say this, can we say this? You are mid-shooting Horrible Histories, season... Season, I think, 10 and 11, I think. Two seasons back-to-back. Yeah, it's um, two seasons back-to-back for CBBC. It's a lot of history. There's so much history, isn't It's 24 episodes, 24 half hours. I play 126 characters or something. How many accents are you doing? Just the one. <laughs> uh, sort of like an estuary, close to London accent, someone who's pretending to be less posh than they actually are. Yeah, and it just seems to suit everything I do. No, I'm doing, I'm approximating many accents, but I'm working from a core base of about six. Okay, that's really good. And then just sort of doing them like louder or quieter, depending right. on the circumstances. That's what being a star is. And that's what I'm doing on children's television in Britain. <laughs> Refusing to do accents properly because I've reached that level. You're a bloody hero and an inspiration to us all. Thanks, mate. And how is your, as we know to the long-term listeners and fans of Jason McNicholas, you will also yeah. know he is still married to Camille Udon, who is the other favourite guest of the show and a woman with huge death anxiety and fear of like. But don't we have a laugh? <laughs> um, yeah, she's good. <laughs> she's good. She's well. She um, she's she. I think she won't mind me saying she she because she's started having therapy now. I think she t- mm. maybe talked about that on here before, and I think it's really helped to get handle on it. She had a session in this very chair <gasps> a, a few hours ago. It's still warm with her anxiety. Wow. I can feel it. <laughs> Has it? If I may ask, has her doing therapy changed your relationship, changed the way she talks with you? Has it made things, has it, has it led to better things, worse things? Has there been an argument because of therapy? Has it made things easier? How would you describe it? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because like, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone who's been going to therapy, I think you sort of definitely know when they've been. Like even, you know, normally it's the same time every week, whatever it might be, but there is a tonal difference before yeah. and after. A lot of chat about boundaries all of a sudden. Yeah, a lot of chat. Yeah, she keeps trying to break up with me afterwards. I don't know what sort of advice she's getting. No, I like this therapist because I find that afterwards, after, you know, if there's been like a disagreement in the week or something, we're not seeing eye to eye on. Nine times out of ten, after the session, mm. that is uh, resolved in some way. Oh, so fantastic. I don't know, I'm obviously not privy to what goes on, but yeah. my experience of it is that this therapist is sat in there saying like, he's a good blow, this James, you want to <laughs> you want to give him a break, to be honest. I mean, and you're not sa- sounds the therapist like, money. Yeah, no, I don't even know who it is. I mean, I've yeah. never met them, you know, of course. But um, great. maybe they're a fan of my podcast. I don't know. Yes. Maybe they love Horrible Histories. Maybe it's Arteta. Maybe it's Mikel Arteta. But they they always seem to be... I'm coming out all right of it so far. Um, Fantastic. Which is good. That's ideal. Nothing better than the therapist taking your side. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No yeah. greater win. That is, that is the biggest win in a relationship, I think. 
<laughs> yeah. That's, I that's... fucking told you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, lovely. Oh, I'm very happy for you. What happens sometimes, though, is like, I mean, I think all relationships have this, but, you know, sometimes Camille might say, oh, my therapist says this. And I'll be like, I said that three weeks ago. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean. You won't take it from me, will you? Yeah. You'll take it from a professional, okay. Oh, right. Someone oh, with right. a qualification rather right. than just a man with an opinion and an ego. <laughs> Uh, I've actually got a very popular podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> I put it out to the listeners and they voted. That's what we came to. And that's not good enough for you. <laughs> These are good people. Um, James McNicholas. Ooh. You have died again. What? Why? Because it is judgment day. You stand on the edge of heaven and hell. So, you must now tell me the best and worst thing you ever did in this life. And answer some questions about film. And in the, in the end, I will decide whether you get to go to heaven or hell. Go! That sounds fair. Yeah, I think so. What's the worst and best thing you did in this life? Oh, I didn't know about this bit. But the best as in, like, for the world? You're, you're selling me you, you as, a, as, as like, you, listen, you're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And you need to tell me the best and worst thing you did. Okay. The worst thing I ever did is easier. Go on. I've pissed in a lot of people's sinks. Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and they haven't known? Like I, I, They haven't known. You haven't just walked into their kitchen and done it? In the no, kitchen? it's not the kitchen. No, it's in the bathroom. Can you explain? Have you got a very high waist? Why do you need... I just think it's at a better a height than a toilet. Hmm. Don't get me wrong. I wipe it down afterwards, but hmm, I don't know if I should have revealed this on air because no one's gonna let it doesn't matter because you're obviously happy together it does suggest you've got a very small penis that can <laughs> that is the right height for a sink you just pop it just lay it on the seat well, it's, it's not... too far down to the toilet <laughs> is yours long enough that it descends into the toilet yeah oh wow brett congratulations <laughs> mine's dipping in i have to like i get on tiptoes <laughs> you got a stepladder, haven't you? Got, yeah. you? You take it in with you. Come on, I nipped your loo. What's that ladder for? Don't worry about it. <laughs> At least I'm not doing it in your sink, am I right? <laughs> why, why Why? are you always popping it in the sink in the bathroom then? I understand if you, if the toilet's busy, you've got to do it in the sink, but the toilet's available and you're still going sink. I just think it's more practical. Hmm. I don't know if it's hereditary because I once told my uncle that I did this and he said, yeah, I do that as well. And we'd never discussed it prior to that point. So somewhere in my genetics. Right. That's big. Or small. Have you pissed in my sink? I never piss and tell. <laughs> fascinating. What a fascinating view. What I say is, if you're listening mm. and you know me and I've been round your house, give the, give the sink a little wipe around. Look, you asked me got, what the worst thing I've ever done is. And I respect it because you've been honest. What's the best thing you've ever done? Bleached all the sinks? Like the kindest thing. Interpret it how you will. You're trying to impress me so I don't send you to hell for pissing in all the sinks. I think the best thing I've ever done is being a good brother. I've been a good brother. Ah, go on. I'm not sure I've been a good son. Okay. Whether I'm a good husband is in the balance. Mm -hmm. But I think I've been a good brother. I've got three siblings. They're all younger than me. And I think I've done a decent job of being like a big brother. You know, I've helped them out when I've been able to and I've offered advice 
when it's been asked, but never, you know, without... Unsolicited. Unsolicited. I am not one of those brothers who's like overprotective of my sisters, let them do what they want. Okay, so now you have to decide um, what happens to me. Or is that so, at the end? Well, let me see. Based on your two stories, being a good brother is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But pissing in people's sinks is bad. Mm, I think we can all agree. I still can't decide. Let's ask you some more questions this time about film. And hopefully that will decide it for me. What is the film that you saw when you were too young to see it that affected you the most? Okay. By the way, hard doing this because obviously I picked a load of films for your show yeah, already. Yeah, yeah, fuck. I had, to go, I had to go and look up what I'd done. Fortunately, oh. people have made spreadsheets. Do you know this? Oh, have they? Oh, great. I, someone made a spreadsheet up to 100 and then they said, I, I can't be bothered to keep doing this. <laughs> yeah, it might have been that one, actually. <laughs> That's it, fair enough. Yeah, that is, that enough. is reasonable. But very sweet yeah. of them to go that far. So the film that I saw when I was too young that affected me, I wasn't, I wasn't way too young to see it, but mm. it was Dante's Peak. Okay, lovely film. Yeah. Linda Hamilton, Pierce Brosnan, a volcano. Yeah. P- only PG-13. Yeah. I actually took the liberty of looking it up did you know that there's a website called kidsinmind.com and it goes, it's got like every film in there, like a repository, and it tells you sort of what is potentially offensive within the mm. film, but it's incredibly detailed. Like for Dante's Peak, the section of uh, language says one mumbled F word, uh, <laughs> some mild obscenities, a few scatological references, a couple of anatomical references, uh, discussion oh. topics. Volcanoes, geology, panic, <laughs> saving people. <laughs> Message, natural disasters cannot be predicted or controlled. It, it's categorised every movie in this way. It's a great website. Anyway. Why did Dante speak? How old were you and why did it affect you so much? I was only about 11, which mm-hmm. again, close to the PG-13. If a parent yeah. was with me, I would have been it's fine. Legal, yeah. But they, they weren't, as far as I recall. Do you remember there's a scene in the film, there's a grandmother character Mm -hmm. and there's like acid rain because natural disasters are happening. Right. And they're on the raft in the middle of like an acid lake and it looks like they're doomed essentially. And grandma jumps off the raft into the acid water and pushes the raft with her kids and grandkids to shore. And saves them, effectively. Mm. And they drag her out of the acid water and her legs are all burned. You see the burned legs. That's mentioned on kidsinmind.com. Don't worry about it. That's in the repository, mate. Yeah, let me tell you. There's something in the repository (laughs) about that. (laughs) Um, Here you go. A woman wades through acid water and later we see blood on her face and neck and bloody patchy burns on her legs. That sounds horrible. But it sort of really haunted me, actually. And I grew up incredibly close to my maternal grandmother, a woman called Barbara, and I mm. spent loads of my childhood with her. I'd say she sort of like, she was sort of my favourite person growing up, and I was sort of her favourite person, which was mm. lovely. And that scene, it chilled me. And what, what chilled me about it was, it wasn't the bloody patchy legs. It was the self-sacrifice that made me so like emotional that I almost couldn't get a handle on it. And it was the first time I really understood that idea of like a parent or a grandparent being prepared to sort of sacrifice themselves 
for their loved ones or, you know, their children Mm. and grandchildren. And it stayed with me so much that I remember as a kid when I wanted to not go to school, I I remember there was a time that I had to motivate myself to cry. It wasn't because I was acting at that point in time. It was just like, I think I need to get some sympathy off mum or dad. And when I used to, when I used to like really try to cry, I always used to think, just imagine that's your grandma jumping off the raft into the acid water and it would bring me out of floods of tears. So the thing is, we're talking about critics and stuff. That's so fascinating. And this is why there shouldn't be reviews because Dante's Peak is considered a piece of shit film. And that is (laughs) a real profound thing that happened to you from that film. Like amazing. Yeah. No one's thinking Dante's Peak's going to really affect you and stay with you for your whole life. And yet here we are. Well, let's not forget, I am the man who said, I think last time I was on, that the most romantic film I've ever seen was Casper. So... Yeah, it is, though. I mean, that's fair. There's going to be some unconventional <laughs> choices. <laughs> but Dante's Peak, yeah, it stayed with I me. I love that. And I was, I was young and I was prone to being affected by it and I was very affected by it. There you go. I love you and your grandma. She's yeah, in, she's, your, she's, in your she's, show, famously. She was in my show. She's she's good. She's good value. If you could play one character in a film, which one would it be? I'd need to be a bit older, okay. but the character is called Randy the Ram Robinson and it's played by Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. You want to be the wrestler? I want to be the wrestler. Interesting. I mean, obviously, like all comic actors my reflex is to go like the Joker. Cause I think every comic actor is like, <laughs> I could do a great Joker. There's like a darkness in me that people haven't really seen yet. And like, if I just get the opportunity, it could really like change perceptions of me. But, um, I thought that was a bit of a cliche. And I also thought you're putting yourself in competition with some pretty, some good pretty decent performances there. There's like a real heritage around that part, but I've chosen the wrestler. And the reason being is that, Sort of a secret passion of mine. I love wrestling. I love. Did it. not know this. Yeah, it's a. It's quite a sort of low key thing, but I love it. I, I'm fascinated by it. This is why you're really good value on this year, <laughs> because it's a new massive revelation every time. And we've known each other years. I've known you for years, and you've never once mentioned wrestling. You Honestly, on up. my life, yeah. I'd say once a month, I say to Camille. I'm packing it all in and becoming a wrestler. At least once a month. You'd be a fucking great wrestler as well. I know. And that's why I need to play one in a movie. No, the the reality is, it's not going to happen now. I've accepted that. I'm not going to be the WWE champion. But... I won't hear talk like that around here. (laughs) But I think I would love... Because the other thing is, you've got to think, it's not just about the finished article of the film. Hmm. It's... How much am I going to enjoy the process? And presumably, Mickey, when he played that part, had to go to like a wrestling school and get slammed on a mat and chucked around and learn how to throw a wrestling punch. And I would love that aspect of it. Like, I would honestly, it's a dream of mine to train to do that. I can talk more about why, because I think it makes perfect sense. I'm someone who's in the entertainment industry but I also love sport and where those two things meet. So like story and character, but the sort of live atmosphere and the drama of sport is in wrestling. That's where they intersect. Um, So I love it. It's like manufactured drama. I love the pageantry. I love the spectacle. I respect 
the people, the athletes who do it, they work really insanely hard. Like, it's not like other sports. There's no off-season. They work, like, several nights a week. Their bodies get battered and bruised. And that's obviously what happens in the movie. You know, it's a guy who's at the end of his career. And it's actually, I don't know this for a fact, but there's a great documentary film about wrestling called Beyond the Mat, which I I really recommend. And it focuses in part on a real wrestler called Jake the Snake Roberts, who was like a big deal in like the 80s and early 90s. And I am I feel like Mickey's interpretation, Mickey Rourke's interpretation of this character is in part based on Jake really? the Snake Roberts. He's like a man whose life has sort of slightly gotten away from him and he's kind of caught in the mystique of this persona that he's created. But his real life, his family is kind of yeah. disintegrating around him. And that is a theme of that movie as well that I really am interested in. And another reason I'd love to play the part is that idea of like, when do you give up? Mm. When are you ready to relinquish that part of your life? When do you give up doing propaganda for Arsenal and become a wrestler? (laughs) I guess is what you're... Well, I guess maybe that is the internal question. I mean, I I think anyone who's in in the arts who is not extremely successful reckons or or even if they are extremely successful reckons with that question at right. various points in their life every you day know? yeah like at what point am i just pursuing a dream or or doing this because it's become my identity mm. am i still contented am i still satisfied by the work could i be better served by doing something else being somebody else i find that question really interesting what would be your wrestler name Oh, wow. My wrestling name would be... James the Beast McNicholas. Yeah, I guess Beast, yeah. The Beast. Yeah. Uh, it's, all, it's all there for me. Yeah. I've even got like a shaved head now. It's the aesthetic. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. I'm looking at you. And thinking. Beast. I mean, I'm a bit more sort of like British beast, wrestler beast, from the beast, 80s. Beast, That's what people are shouting at the side. I know. As you come out. Brett, you're, I mean, you're, you're getting me excited now. That, that is sort of my dream. I, it is kind Mate, of mad. It, it never was. It. it came to me late. I just sort of fell for it as a world. And I do think it's a good film, The Wrestler. And I think it's a hell of Great a film. part, that. Lovely, lovely answer. Yeah. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What? Is the worst date you ever had at a film? Or time. Could be worst time. I struggle with this one, you know. I really struggle with it. You're good at dates. I've got an answer. I'm just too good at dates. No one's ever had a bad date with me. Don't write in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Comment section closed. Yeah. (laughs) If we could all focus on the pissing in sync stuff, 
Just let that attract all <laughs> the attention. I'm a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one. It's not a feature-length film. I hope that's acceptable. You tell me. Let's hear it. Raymond Briggs. Are you aware of Raymond Briggs? The Snowman. The Snowman. When the Wind Blows. Right. He's got one called Father Christmas. Yeah, and it's it's not a feature-length film, but it's a lovely Christmas film. It's based okay. on a, a book that Ray Briggs did. I think Ray Briggs died quite recently, didn't he? And it's brilliant. And it's a Christmas tradition in my house that we watch it on Christmas Eve, in my, my childhood house growing up. And one Christmas about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, when we were all sort of getting a bit too old for that to be a thing, we had a big row as a family in the house on Christmas Eve. Just like over nothing, you know, yeah. like, well, you said we weren't doing presents this year, that kind of thing. And... You hadn't brought any presents, I get it. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, well, somebody said, right, well, we haven't, we, and we haven't, and guess what? We haven't watched Father Christmas, so that's Christmas ruined, sort of thing. And then someone was like, right, well, have you got it? You got the DVD? Right, well, we'll put it on then. And we put it on and sat, not making eye contact, in awkward, like, stiff silence for 32 minutes or whatever it is of Father Christmas going around, like, oh, get all the presents ready. <laughs> we all just sat there fuming with each other. So That's funny. You hate watched Father Christmas. We hate watched Father Christmas <laughs> on Christmas Eve, and it's, like, the thing that brings me most joy. And we sat there being like, right, well, I suppose we'll watch it then. Yeah, well, we will watch it then. Well, I suppose we'll have a fucking mince pie while we're doing it, will we? Yes. Like that. I'm enjoying this. Are you yeah. enjoying this? Happy Christmas. This, yeah, this Come is on. so festive, you fucking piece of shit. <laughs> Maybe I'm not a good brother. I don't know. <laughs> I forget presents once a year. Give me a break. <laughs> I'm too busy in the sink. If you could live in the world of one film, which would it be? Right, well, I thought about this because there are some amazing worlds depicted in films, yeah. and I love fantasy and sci-fi, and so that sounds appealing, but they're death traps, most of them. Like... Sci-fi, sci-fi worlds, yeah, often, yeah. Yeah. Or the or, world. Exactly. No, like, you know, if you hop into Lord of the Rings or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm, an orc's taking you out, early doors, or you dragons eating so, you yeah. or something. So my answer, I think I've actually cracked this, is James Cameron's Avatar. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is that the mechanic in Avatar is that you're a human in a spaceship, effectively, and you jump in a little pod, and then you get to be one of these Avatars, aliens running around, experiencing Pandora, I believe Mm -hmm. the planet is called. We're all about to hear a lot more about it. And basically, if you die as an Avatar, you don't die in real life. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, yes, I do see what you're saying. So you get to be there <coughs> you can in even 3D die. or whatever it is. I don't know yeah. what he's up to, Cameron, these in the days. IMAX. You're in the IMAX. You're like, all the plants are lovely colours. Look at the animation on mm. that. Wow. Um, your legs are a bit long. L- that sort of stuff's happening. But if you something should befall you, you fall down a hole, you get shot, mm. you just wake up a bit stressed in the spaceship. Yeah, Ooh, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I seem to remember... Again. Yeah, I seem to remember in Avatar 1, as I guess it will soon be known, Mm. you just sort of wake up a bit like, oh, that was lucky that that was just my Avatar and not me. So basically the answer is Avatar because you get to explore the world without consequences. Without actually going there. Great answer. Correct. I'd say that's correct, actually. Great, thanks. What what is your favourite children's film? Oliver. Yes. Brilliant film. So dark. 
Have you what I watched it again yeah. recently? Boy, is that a dark you film? It's very, very dark. But there's just some incredible look, I love the music. I remember mm. I saw the show when I was a kid and but the performances in it, I mean Ron Moody's performance as Fagin yeah. is sensational. Oliver Reed Incredible is in there as Bill Sykes. That's my dream role. Well, I mean it is basically what I did for Roy Kent. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Let's see what I based him on. Is Bill Sykes with a with a bit more emotional availability? Was Oliver Reed the ex footballer that you spent time yeah. with preparing? I didn't know yeah. he played. How interesting. He did. Yeah. He's, he was always like, they don't know what what I'm doing out there, and I was like, yeah, no one does. <laughs> <laughs> and just the scale of the production is extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. I, I honestly, it's an amazing film and I I feel like as a kid it was always on like maybe it was again like a Christmas thing but I feel like it was on telly an unusual amount every bank holiday at least it was on yeah I reckon it still is I reckon they're still rolling it out yeah and and I can't knock it I just think it's it's got drama it's poignant great music big numbers it's got everything you want you a fan I love it I absolutely love it and I and I in all seriousness, did see it recently and was, like, surprised how dark the last sort of 20 minutes of it are. I mean, like, really dark. Like, man gets hung, woman gets battered to death, you know, mm. kid. There isn't really a happy... He just sort of is returned to these people that will look after him, but it isn't... It's kind of weirdly sort of... He's still been uh, through a lot of trauma at the end. Yeah, he's he, been through... It's quite a melancholic... And it isn't like a sort of, yay, ending. It's like, oh, God, I mean, I hope he's going to be all right. <laughs> They've yeah. all been through quite a lot. He'll need some therapy. That's for he's sure. He's going to need so much therapy, and hope. And but if he's if it's Camille's therapist, therapist's going to say, "Well, Bill Sykes was probably in the right." Actually, hang on, I am know. I Bill Sykes in this relationship? <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. Look at you. That's true. Actually, big scary wrestler, Bill the Beast Sykes. <laughs> what is the film that you didn't think you would like that you ended up loving? It's the Big Short, and it's because I didn't, as a premise think that I would really engage with a movie about the financial crash. And actually, even in the first 15 minutes of it, I was like, I need a glossary for this film. Yeah. Have I told you that uh, uh, the big short lost me maybe five minutes in where someone looks at Cameron and said, I think it's Brad Pitt, looks at Cameron and goes, I'll make this simple for you, for people who don't understand anything. You have bonds, right? And I wanted to put up my hand and go, go back further. I don't know what a bond is. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true. You, you've just simplified it and I've already lost. I've lost on step one if you're simplifying. Well, I didn't see it in a cinema and I think that was crucial because if I recall right. correctly, at those points in the movie, I was pausing and Googling stuff. Now, smart. you could argue the movie hasn't successfully done its job if I'm having to Google it. But I think maybe most people, Brett, with yeah. like real jobs, know what bonds are. Yeah, I think we are the exception, not the rule. We just think it's a spy. We're like, what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. talking about bonds. Um, it's got bonds, and the bonds exactly. shorted. I'm like, what are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> but, but in the end, know. it won me round. And yeah. listen, I, I mean, I should have known really because it's Adam McKay, and I've liked a lot of his stuff. But and I only saw it quite recently. And actually, right. it's one of those things where. Yeah, I watched it on a streaming service because I remember I was sort of pausing and starting and being like, oh, okay, so that's that. And, and I genuinely learned something. I mean, it was sort of a, an area of recent history that I'll hold my hands up. I knew nothing about and I took quite a lot away from it. Which part are you playing when they do the Horrible Histories episode of it? 
um, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully Steve Carell. He's got a cool yeah, part in that. Exactly. It is scary, by the way. Horrible histories. You think of it as like, oh, we do like the Tudors and we do like Romans and ancient Greeks. Mm. In the forthcoming series, there is a sketch set in the year I was born. <gasps> yeah, 1986. What? It's about What's the first the mobile phones. Jesus, that is scary. Yeah. God, have you literally run out of history? Jesus. I think we're running so out, guys. I know. We're caught up. It's like the crown. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to slow down. We're caught up and now it's awkward. What is the single most erotic moment in film? Right. What are people saying for this? I mean... When you had to, I can't even remember, probably something, you know, fake, like, oh, the feel of the, the breeze on my skin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I remember yeah. coming on this show the first time and complaining yeah. about that. People weren't yeah. actually choosing. This question's here for you. Thanks, mate. The, the real shit. Well, you know what's interesting is that mm. out-and-out sex scenes in movies, I don't think are often hugely erotic. Um, I don't know if you feel the same, but I, I just feel like there's a... The, the eroticism, for me at least, often exists in like the tension. Yeah. The one I've chosen, have you seen a movie called Don John? Yes, I have, and I think it's wildly underrated. It's a brilliant film. I was film. amazed it wasn't a hit. It's a great film. And I think he's really good, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think he directed it. He did. He wrote and directed it. And I it's think fantastic. it's a great... I think it's a really nice movie. Yeah. I thoroughly recommend it. And he plays opposite Scarlett Hansen in it. Mm. And there's a scene where they are outside her front door. I know the scene. Keep talking. <laughs> Bring it home. They're outside her front door and she's like, I've got to go inside. And he's like this very sort of jockish ladies' man. And basically, she's sort of dry humping him outside of the corridor, isn't she? Yeah. But she's talking to him while she's doing it. She's sort of giving him some dirty talk. And he desperately wants to go inside and he can't. But she knows that he wants to. And she's very powerful in that moment. And uh, this guy who's like the, the consummate ladies' man is sort of slightly brought to heel by Scarlett Hansen's character. And it is incredibly charged and erotic and it feels very real crucially yeah. like it's a credit to their performances because it feels like a true private moment and it feels authentic to like experiences you've had in your life I think a bit as well like I don't know this feels like insanely personal but like you know the sort of traditional movie thing of like oh we met we fell in love with you know going through and tear each other's clothes off and that's fine but it's all sort of I think real life's always a bit more, there's more sort of uh, forwards and back and, one, you know, yeah. brakes and accelerator. And this captures that quite well. I don't know if you agree. I think that is an excellent answer and a very erotic moment and a great film that was totally uh, missed out on. That, see, this is Don what John. critics should be doing, telling yeah. people to go and see Don John. Maybe they yeah. did. Which film you don't care about as a whole as a single sequence that you love. So you don't like the film, but there's a yeah. bit in it that you're like, that's fucking one of the great bits. Small Soldiers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joe Dante, Small Soldiers. Joe Dante, Small Soldiers. Joe Dante, who made the Gremlins films. Yeah. It's Kirsten about... Dance. Yeah. Tommy Jones. Yeah, he's the voice. It's about some sentient toys, effectively, that are at a war with each other. I think what it, the plot is that... The military develop some sort of AI, military, highly intelligent microchip, and mm -hmm. it gets implanted 
either by accident or by design into these children's toys and they end up in a house and go haywire. And there is a sequence or a scene where the sort of bad toys, they're called the Commando Elite. I think Tommy Lee Jones is the leader. And they're hanging out in a garage and the young lad in it and Kirsten Dunst sort of escape from the house and they're like, we're away from the nasty toys. Everything's fine. And then the garage door blows off, like a hole gets blown in it. And that song by Edwin Starr that goes, War, huh, yeah, what is it good for? Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. nothing. Say yeah. it again. And, and then all these toys come out on these like improvised vehicles they've made out of things they found in the garage. So they've like stuck wheels on a cheese grater. And it's just like, it's the moment the movie has been building towards. You're like, there are these toys with malicious intent and military genius. At what point are we going to see that manifest? And then the garage doors blow off and these five vehicles come out and Tommy Lee Jones, as a toy, he stood on the top. You got that song in the background and it's just a great scene. It's a great scene. And then a, a little chase ensues. It's top stuff. I believe that that song, War, is also in the Barry Levinson film, Toys. How really? Weird. I believe so. And they're both about, both about toys. It's, it's used in a few movies, for sure. Really, really good answer, Beast. You're very good. What is the film that stayed with you the longest after seeing it? You know what I mean? Took it took a while to, to let go of it. Obviously, there are films you remember forever, but where you're like, I was crying for a week or whatever. I was horny for a week, let's say. Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's Don John, I think. Um, I think, and this I'd say is one of my less maybe niche choices, I think it was This Is England, actually. Mm-hmm. I really loved that film. I thought it was brilliant. And a central performance from... What's Thomas his name? Tuggies? No, not Tommy Turgis. Oh, Stephen Graham. Stephen Graham. Yeah. Is just extraordinary. And the scene where he sort of beats somebody up in a racially motivated attack. I feel like that film did to me what that character does. So that character arrives and he's charming and captivating and alluring and everyone is kind of sucked into his orbit and there's a threat of violence in the background. Mm. But then it all explodes in that one scene and all the darkness of his character floods in. And I feel like my relationship to the movie was parallel to that, where as I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is so great. Such an interesting, you know, colourful depiction of like life in a particular period of time in England. And there are these characters who I'm sort of falling for and I empathise with. And and even Stephen Graham's character, it's like he holds a sort of roguish appeal. And then I felt like that movie just like, bam, beat the crap out of me, basically. And it's brutal. It's really brutal. And uh, the it lived with me for a little while. And I still think about it quite a lot, actually. I've not watched that film quite quite a long time because I genuinely find that scene really difficult. Yeah. Is this why you shaved your head? To become a racist thug. <laughs> no, it's to be a wrestler, Brett. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. The real reason is because it makes horrible histories easier because they can yeah. tape the wigs to my head. I'll say this. You're fucking cool as fuck and you're going to make a great wrestler. 
Thanks, man. I'm really looking forward to it. Suits you. Are you going to keep it like this after Horrible History? Interesting question. I don't know. Mm. I think my agent's a bit like wary of me keeping it. I think. I mean, I've sort of explained that. Do you like it? Uh, yeah, I do like it. But I do see that you might get pushed down an alleyway. But then if I want to play the wrestler, then maybe that's not a problem. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> what is the film that made you feel better about the world? It's School of Rock, actually. Yeah! How could it not? I love it, love it, love it. I genuinely will go and watch um, the final performance that they do from School of Rock if I'm feeling blue. Yeah. And, by the way, I love Jack Black. I have to say, like, I really, really... Love Jack Black. I think he's absolutely extraordinarily talented. Do you want to come with me to see Tenacity Live when they come in the summer? So much. Like, uh, in the last fortnight, I've spent quite a lot of time watching clips of Tenacious D. Amazing. And and he's an incredible, incredible performer. He really is. And I think he's great on screen. He manages to sort of be big and wild and crazy, but it never feels out of place. And what I love about this movie is how earnest it is, how unapologetically earnest it is. Like, there's no veil of irony to it and it would be so easy for there to be yeah and I guess that shouldn't be a surprise if you look at like Richard Linklater's other films like there is that earnest quality I think that runs through them that's true yeah and I think that yeah he's not a snarky guy no and I think and and, and, and genuinely like as someone who's sort of professionally snarky I think like as comics like we're often like quite professionally snarky Mm. as I get older I'm increasingly interested in like how can we just be like finding permission to just be earnest and for that to be okay for me. And yeah, um, yeah. and I think you're very good at that, actually. I think you're pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. But School of Rock is exemplary at it and it's just so much fun. It makes you think, ah, everything's all right in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know what? It's a, an interesting, like, behind-the-scenes thing that I learned about School of Rock, which maybe is like a thing that will go towards your thought on it, is that... I think in the original script, you know, he's replacing a teacher. He's substituting a teacher, Miss, Mr. Schneebly. He, he gets a phone call, we need a replacement teacher. And I think in the original script, the teacher was injured or the teacher broke their leg and maybe you saw that. And Jack Black was like, I don't want any injury. I don't want it, I don't want it to have been something nasty or sad that's happened. Like as in, I don't oh, want that's the... that's really interesting. You don't want there to be any sort of darkness about this teacher. Like, where's this teacher gone and... Like, it, it shouldn't be... I think it was sort of done as a joke. You see this per- person break their leg or something like that, and he was like, I don't, I don't want that. Wow. Yeah, but Great. that fits perfectly. Yeah. What is your favourite couple in a film? It's Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore in The Wedding Singer. Wow. I mean, one of my top, top, top ten couples is Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore in Fifty First Dates. Yeah. Well, I actually think Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore... It's interesting, isn't it, how... Some couples, particularly in rom-coms, just have a certain chemistry, mm. you know, like uh, Hanks and uh, Ryan. Yeah. Um, and I think those two, Sandler and Barrymore, are so, again, believable on screen. Like their relationship feels so real. But in The Wedding Singer, there's just a couple of things. I mean, it's a film I really loved, like when it came out and I was only yeah. young and I really enjoyed it. But there's a couple of things, like they're friends, they're proper friends. 
she's like a good friend to him and he, he goes through a breakup. And, and I always am drawn to that because my own relationship is like that. We were friends first and, you know, sort of nursed each other through breakups as friends and then ended up getting together. So I've got a soft spot for anything like that. Mm. <clears throat> Sounded like I was going to cry then, but actually I just had a cough. Um, <laughs> um, but there's also a, a little bit in that movie that really stays with me. I don't know if you remember, but there's... I think he's just been left at the altar and he tells Drew Barrymore he's written a song. Yeah. And I think the song is called Somebody Kill Me Please. It's really great. It's really funny. It's like starts as like a gentle ballad and it ends with him just like screaming into the microphone. I think the lyrics are, I want to die, pretty, pretty please, somebody kill me. And the camera cuts back to Drew Barrymore and she's sort of, as it's been progressing, she's sort of looked a little bit alarmed. But when it sort of gets to the end and he's at his most broken, she's sort of smiling. Yeah. Like, she's, and she says, like, that was great. And she's kind of laughing at him. And when he is at his most ugly and his most broken, she sees something sort of funny and gentle in that when he's screaming abuse about somebody in a song. And I think that's a great quality in a couple. What film inspired you to do something? Slight roundabout answer to this. The film is Soul, animated movie. One of the all-time greats. And the interesting thing about it is that the message of that film is is kind of that it's not about doing one thing, you know, having these great dreams and ambitions, but it's about appreciation of life in its moment-to-moment experience. And I think because of who I am and the work I have done or do and kind of work I've wanted to do. I've always thought about my life in terms of like, if I could just get that job, if I could just play that part, if I could just get that script commissioned, if I could just persuade that footballer that I'm not a wanker, all these things. It was four years ago, forgive me. (laughs) Let it go, boy. Um, (laughs) Nearly said his name. (laughs) Nearly said his name. Um, They'll be listening to that. The Arsenal fans will be like, listen, who was it? I've always been sort of guilty of thinking about my life in terms of those achievements and milestones. And that's obviously what character Joe in in Soul goes through, where his focus is so on, oh, I've got this big break, this potential big break. And he kind of pursues it almost at the expense of everything else. And in there's that incredible scene where he sits down at piano and he plays a piece of music. It's called Epiphany. And it's by, uh, it's co-written by Trent Reznor, who's the guy from like, Nine Inch Nails. Nails. And in that, I think as as he's playing or just before he plays it, he sort of has all these like trinkets from his experiences and his life. And he realises that, you know, this thing that he's got on this pedestal as this ultimate dream and goal and ambition, that's not why he's here. Mm. It's not defining. And that, you know, real purpose and meaning can be found in the day-to-day. So that movie inspires me to try and keep that perspective and remember that it's not the destination, it's the journey and, you know, that there is joy and satisfaction to be found just in being here. Based that sequence that you talk about, I have watched it. I have used it for my mental health. Like I have watched it a lot. I think it is one of the... It is a very, very, very special, profound sequence and I'm very glad that you picked it. And it's mental that it's in a kid's film. I mean, honestly. But it's also such a complicated, it's such a... 
I think of all the Pixar films and every time they sort of top them, but it's it's such a like it's so unusual for a Hollywood for a Hollywood film where the message is completing the mission, following your dream is not the answer. The answer is leaves. Mm. That is like fucking huge. But it <laughs> doesn't answer. surprise me that that would resonate with you as well, because uh, you know. <laughs> well, no, because we're also we're in yeah. similar worlds, and I think if you're in these worlds, you're maybe prone to forgetting that. And that's that's partly what the movie's about. I also think another layer is added to it by by the fact that it is written by Trent Reznor and, mm. you know, in the 90s he was writing and recording music so dark and about yeah. a man sort of nihilistic almost in terms of, like, destroying himself. And, it, and he, he was almost living it as art. Mm. And now he's at another point in his life doing very different work and with a very different perspective. You know, when you know that as well, I think it, it adds another layer to that sequence. It is an amazing, amazing sequence. Beast! Mm. You have answered all the questions very well, and now I must decide. Will you go to heaven, or will you go to hell? Who will be surprised that, of course, after all these wonderful answers, I'm sending you to heaven? Well done. You've made it. But that doesn't mean I won't resurrect you. (laughs) In the end... You could offer to give me one... Oh, no, I missed a bit. In the end, you could offer to give me one film that is meaningful in the hope I will spare you. Then I will make my final decision. No spoilers. I've sort of already made it. Okay. It's got to be Soul, hasn't it? It's got to be Soul. Correct. You're back into heaven. Well done. Yes! Beast. James the Beast McNicholas. I look forward to seeing you wrestle in heaven with your friends. Thanks, man. And Arteta, who may not be in heaven. (laughs) I look forward to coming back. Yeah, well, you're always welcome. You are truly a magnificent, thoughtful, funny, sensitive and brilliant man. Is there anything you would like to tell people to listen to, look out for or watch in the coming months? No, not really. I mean, you know, I'm in a few movies here and there. But I I won't tell you which and then people will just be like, that's that guy from Brett's podcast. No, and listen, go and watch Don John. Yeah, if we've done anything this week. If we've done anything, it's established that people need to go and watch Don John. That's my message to you. Great. Beast, I love you. Thank you. Have a wonderful time in heaven. I'll see you soon. I will do. I look forward to coming back for the fourth one. Thank you. Films to be buried with. Brett's run out of famous friends. (laughs) I'll work on a new concept. You just have to name 15 other films you've seen. That you haven't mentioned so far. Yeah, every question is gone. Tell me another one. <laughs> yeah, uh... what else? <laughs> what else have you seen? <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good day to you. Bye. So that was episode 223. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra 20 minutes of chat, secrets and video with James. Thank you so much to James for giving me his time. I very much hope you're all well. I really appreciate you listening. Next week's going to be another banger. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to Acast for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week for another incredible guest. But that's it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week. And please, now more than ever, be excellent to each other.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Maureen, your Canva presentation looks brilliant. Thanks, Brett. That's because I used AI-powered Canva presentations. I just described what I wanted and Canva presentations generated the perfect slides. You can even make a talking presentation for people to watch on their own time. Check this out. Recording. 101 Reasons Why Beaches is the Saddest Film Ever Made by your neighbour Maureen. Is it easy to use? If you can use a computer, you can nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh, thanks, my neighbour Maureen. Yeah, thank you.